Welcome everybody to another one of my um, podcasts. Hello to those watching on YouTube and hello wherever you are in the ether listening on the varying um, uh, podcast channels. And um, I'm not going to say delighted because I always say delighted and pod host cast always are delighted to have people. Um, so welcome to Steve and this is Steve's very first podcast. So please be kind to him, uh, listeners. And um, Steve, this is going to be again an interesting one. The focus is very much professional services. But I do believe that what we're going to talk about today is relevant for uh, for everybody. So, Steve, according to your LinkedIn profile, you describe yourself as, let's just drag that out of the way, a sales leader, relationship builder, mentor, advising on selling in professional services. So over to you, Steve. Who are you? What's your background? What's your story? And as usual, my listeners know, let's see where this goes. Well, Alex, delighted to be here. <laughs> <laughs> what you did there <laughs> <laughs> i am listening Keep still. um yeah so it's great to be uh, on my first podcast let's see how it goes i was just telling alex that um i used to do these internally at my old firm ey uh but at most they lasted about five or ten minutes so this might push me into marathon scale but we'll see how we go um yeah i'm uh, recently um I describe myself as semi-professional now, um, rather than retired, but I left EY back in 2019 uh, when I hit the required age to go out and pastures new and create my second innings as one of my clients, uh, a great uh, guy down in India, fascinated by, uh, fanatical about cricket. So he said, this is great, Steve, you're going to go into your second innings now. Um, so um, yeah, good luck. Um, yeah, so I joined EY back in 1981, if any of your listeners can actually relate to that. Yes. And <laughs> started as an auditor, um, worked out after 12 years, or the firm might have worked out. I wasn't very good at that. Um, and then moved into a number of roles internally in EY, which I would describe as varied and um, uh, instructive. So um, out of audit, um, into a government secondment where I learned how to write. Right. And um, I think that's where I picked up first set of influencing skills um, because I was basically doing an internal sales job on risk management and internal audit in the Department of Education and Science. Wow. So you can see yeah. how I learned to write. And also I had to try and spread the word about risk management to, to mandarins in governments who weren't remotely interested in what I used to be passionate about, which was earning money and making profit, <laughs> doing things more efficiently. They were, you know, kind of efficient and effective as their, uh, their mantra, but, you know, to influence them, you had to come up with a whole new set of, of arguments. And um, looking back, I think I learned an awful lot that, you know, you can't judge a book by the immediate binder or the mm -hmm. cover. Yeah. because I was always forced to ask, well, why aren't they actually buying into my recommendation to do this? <laughs> why are they behaving uh, that way? Yeah. Surely they get the picture. You know, so understanding why people behave in a particular way, understanding what makes them tick, and therefore being able to influence them. I think I started on that journey, and that was back in uh, 1988, 89. Yeah. Came back to EY and created um, a small business to 
sounds very grand, but I created a small business using my uh, CV from education to go after and pitch for a bunch of uh, engagements and audits in newly formed colleges of higher education and polytechnics, mm -hmm. etc. Um, then moved from that into um, a business unit selling risk and internal audit services, which grew into something uh, quite substantial in the UK and across Europe. Yeah. Um, and then uh, EY did something quite radical amongst the professional services firms at the time, and that was to take partners out of the line and give them discretion to go out and sell. That dirty word, sell, at the time, um, if you were a professional. Go out and make a book of business selling Anthony Young's wares to all of the um, audit clients that we didn't currently audit. So that was, so that was in terms of the. So to explain to listeners who don't understand kind of professional services, you were moving out of a fee earning position, i.e., basically hours on the clock as an advisory perspective, to out and out carrying a bag, go and sell what EY can do to clients that we don't audit, basically. Yeah. And when Real, would that, yeah. Would uh, uh, hmm? When would that have been? Roughly. Oh, back in uh, early 2000, early 2003, okay. 2004. So at that time, uh, it's changed just recently because of regulations in the audit field, but we had 20, less than 20% of the external audit market yeah. in, um, in the UK, and we're effectively seen as an audit firm. Mm -hmm. So to grow the top line, um, our executive came up with a uh, the idea that why don't we go and sell all of the services that the other audit firms can't sell to their audit clients because there's an 80% market out there for it. If you look at the top 100, there are 80 FTSE companies that we can go and create a relationship with. Mm -hmm. And back in early 2000, there weren't many companies being forced to use alternatives to their audit firm. Yeah. So you had one-to-one -one relationships, um, company to auditor, company to professional services firm. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a most fun time. Like you just said, um, I had a, the enlightening thing from it was, and I'd learned a bit about this, creating the, the risk management business before it, was we had a target revenue. That was the number. Yeah. Um, we didn't have any chargeable hours. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any projects to fall back on. It was quite exposed. But if we made the number and we were given a, we were starting from scratch, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about mm -hmm. the companies I work with, but we had zero fee relationships with the target clients that we went on. Yeah. And we were given a time scale at that time of three years to get the number to $20 million. Mm -hmm. And it became a global target. Yeah. And more about that later. So back in 2003, 2004, just put a, a benchmark around that, the revenue target for a chargeable professional in EY was something about two or three million dollars. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so big, big um, <laughs> part of that was, I think, the sell to the partners on mass and saying, you're going to pay for 20 partners who yeah. won't have any chargeable fee income coming in. Mm -hmm. In return, they're going to create a book of business of 20 million, but you're going to have to give them some slack for you. Yeah. Um, quite exposed, but exhilarating. So, you know, there's nothing that focuses the mind more 
than coming into work in the morning knowing that you haven't got anything to do unless you pick up the phone or make some sales calls personally or create a proposition and go and take it out to your target client. Um, so uh, that took me through to about 2016, 17, and with clients like Unilever, SAB Miller, Smith & Nephew, mm -hmm. Burberry, um, to name but a few. Yeah. Where I was the client service partner, sometimes global, you know, something like a Burberry, you know, started mm -hmm. off a UK and then group. Um, but um, then in 2016, 17, with retirement approaching, mm -hmm. I handed over the mantle for the accounts I was uh, working with and I moved into creating uh, an EMEA wide alliance with Microsoft. Okay. I mean, EY and Microsoft. Yeah. And this might get us into where I think the future of professional firms need to be, mm -hmm. particularly so given what we've seen with COVID. But, you know, we, uh, as I look back now into EY, we have an ecosystem of alliances with a number, 30, 40 um, technology, digital, life sciences, you know, kind of different organizations. Uh, creating models to go to market and solve clients' pro uh, solutions by one plus one equals three, yeah. five or seven. Mm -hmm. So my job for the last three years was to create a working relationship across EMEA, our um, partner groupings across 27, 28 countries in that region between Microsoft and our account leaders. And I played a dating agency, basically. <laughs> and set, uh, and I would describe the role I had as an account partner as running a dating service. Sometimes it turned into you know, marriage counselling, but I never had a divorce, yeah. if that yeah. metaphor worked. But you know, basically, I would sit in the middle, uh, make the, the, the connections between a Microsoft, you know, take Germany, you know, what are Microsoft doing in Germany? Mm -hmm. What are EY doing in Germany? Where are mutual? beneficial targets that we can work together on and add value to our mutual clients and then bringing them together and you know like a babel fish converting microsoft speak into ey and yeah. ey into microsoft speak and hoping to make them both talk in in german english or whatever yeah because there's a great propensity to go gabba 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 three letter three letter acronyms and you'd sit in a room and it was like dogs watching television, you know, <laughs> heads were nodding but, and they were looking at the screen, but they had no idea what was going on. <laughs> the biz business translator <laughs> joining, the, um, joining the dots and uh, that's, I mean, thank you for sharing, you know, share, sharing that story. And I think certainly from, you know, my perspective, that's why I was really keen to get you to get you on because you're right, sales is a dirty word in professional service. I think in the world of kind of the accountants, it's becoming more prevalent, the world of legal. I mean, I'm seeing it, I'm using it more and more in terms of my travels, but it's still kind of like something that we don't do. I don't need to sell because I am who I am and I focus on on me and what I do and forget around the rest, forget the rest of the firm because it's about me. So before we kind of get into that, what, what were your, what was your, your learnings of literally, I guess on the, I'm going to, you know, simplify it somewhat, but Friday afternoon, you, you suddenly got a, you know, fee earning target of 2 million and 3 million. Monday morning, you come in with a sales revenue target of 20 million, $20 million, starting from literally 
zero. So did, were you given any coaching, any guidance? Or was it like, I just got to make this work? And if it's, and then what did, what, what did, what did he do? How did he go about doing it? Well, um, I think, first of all, there were a great band of 20 or 25 of us um, global account partners that yep. came to be. Um, if I'm honest, there wasn't, there wasn't a manual at that stage and we were trading off what we used to do, whether we were a tax partner or there was a range of different service line partners. In there. Okay. Um, you would trade off, you, know, you obviously sold your particular discipline before, so you had some elements of, you know, kind of, you knew how to sell, so to speak. Uh, and I hope selling isn't too much of a dirty word now, but, you know, kind of, it's more about building relationships and yeah. trusted partnerships and all that kind of stuff. But um, we had a, um, a, a cadre of us that learned together. Mm -hmm. okay. um, the one thing I would say about you know, my, my good friends, and there were many of them amongst the part, that partner group, is we all did it in slightly different ways. So, you know, professional selling, it's a people-to-people -people business. So the way I did it, was completely different to how my buddy Howard did it, who mm -hmm. was sitting next to me. Yeah. Either because of the nature of the client, um, the culture they're in, the sector they're in, or whatever. But we did teach ourselves. Mm -hmm. It later didn't take long, as, as uh, our professional firms do, to capture the learning. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the thing. As soon as we did something, and we were very big on um, what we used to call single frames. Can you get a value proposition onto one page? Yeah. And Alex, yeah, do stop me if I'm talking. I'm slipping into you know <laughs> jargon <laughs> now, mate. <laughs> yeah. No, getting you a me up if I did. That makes sense. Um, I would, yeah. I don't, my mantra is always try and get things into English. Yeah. Yeah. I'm from Birmingham, so there's a slight twang to it. But anyway, um, yeah. So we would uh, we would share everything that we'd done. So, you know, if we were into transfer pricing, uh, which is basically tax uh, yeah. efficient planning when companies move from A to B, if I'd done something in Unilever, say, I'd flip it across to the, the people who are running you know, Procter & Gamble. Yeah. Um, you know, sanitized, obviously, but, you know, there would be a great deal of sharing. Mm -hmm. And we'd come together on calls, uh, regular meetings, uh, as a cadre, you know, every couple of, you know, every six months, we pulled the whole 20 mm -hmm. together. And as we moved into a European and a global basis, because you, um, UK trialed this and then it went global. Okay. So we'd have global account leader mm -hmm. meetings. And then, you know, kind of in the same way that any sales force would do, we would share best practice. Best practice. Uh, but, you know, Based on my experience of doing this, at, um, not doing what you <laughs> supporting what you were doing at PwC, not doing what you were doing at PwC, and you know trying to you know manage as a BD manager um, the kind of the, the account meetings and some of the uh, behaviours that I encountered, <laughs> should we say? How, how did you how did you bring the the you know around these global accounts? How did you bring certain personalities? along on this journey going, I want you to get on this global account call because it's for the greater good of the clients. And whilst it might not impact you right now, you need to be part of this team. And you kind of, you know, you know where I'm going with this. Some certain individual just like, no, not interested, not playing that game. No, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah. When, yeah. There's all, yeah. 
you could, we could go in a number of ways in this conversation. Um, there's a culture within certain partnerships that this is my account and you're yeah. not coming in and I'm not going to share this because I'm threatened by it. Yeah. Um, I'd, I always, uh, I'm a great, yeah, I, I do, I've had done the odd presentation where I use uh, movie themes. So I'm a great believer in paying paying it forward. If you yeah. Have, yeah, it's an old film, but basically um, I would quickly got to the point where to get somebody involved in the account, I had to show how attractive it was. Yeah. Typically uh, partners, who weren't doing our role were targeted on their, their chargeable hours and their fees. Yeah. So the easiest way to their heart was to get them some work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of dangling the opportunity, I can get you 20% ahead on Monday morning with your sales target for transfer property. Yeah. How are you going to do that stuff? Well, I've built a relationship with the global tax director at Unilever. And I've said that you're the bee's knees of what you do. So, would you like to meet that individual? And they go, oh my word, <laughs> I've been trying to get to that, that person at this conference and that, they won't return my calls. Was, How did you do that? Well, I know the CFO and the CFO blessed me to go and see that person. Mm -hmm. And that person is going to bless, I'm blessed you to go and see. And I would do that on a global basis. And then, so that's one thing. The next thing is to share intelligence that my job was to understand more about I'll major on Unilever, but there are other, yeah, yeah. other accounts. Mm -hmm. um, my job was to know more about Unilever than anybody else in our firm. And because of that, I could, again, get, you know, get somebody 20% ahead mm -hmm. of their game on Monday morning by giving them some intelligence that I found out. Like, did you know that I'm moving factory A from Germany to the yeah. UK? Is that of interest to you, a supply chain advisory person? Is that of interest to you, tax person, because there'll be all sorts of um, um, incentives to move that factory. Would you like to go and sell the latest beanies? Would you like to do that? Uh, so that's one thing I did. The other thing is, you know, as an account partner, the firm created um, a culture of, if you want to get something done in these accounts, you need to go to these people. Right. So okay. you would have a queue at your door yeah. of people holding the latest deck they're super yeah. duper idea. Um, we'll get to decks in a minute, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I would listen to those. And personally, I I trusted my fellow partners and um, professional staff. So if they had invested time to come up with something they thought was good, yeah. I would get them an entree. Obviously, if it was way off the mark, I'd, I'd try and get, get them back or say, I've done that once or they're not interested at the moment because they're interested. But largely, I would, you know, somebody knocked on the door and said, could you get me an entree? I would get them an entree. Yeah. Nothing works better in a professional services firm than creating a dialogue or an aura that says, it's really easy to get into that account. So, you know, and if you do this, good things will happen. They might not happen uh, all the time because at the end of the day, we're, it got competitive, you know, because all of these major clients are very promiscuous. Um, you know, bumping into P PwC with the, the external auditors, so they're still able to trade their relationship and pull people in. Then the other firms started to realize that this game that EY, EY were on was a good game. Yeah. So we should do that as well. <laughs> and the clients sit in there going, manna from heaven. You know, <laughs> so can you... <laughs> so, but largely it's creating 
a friend of mine, you know, uh, sort of his best practice was create a magnetic of a pull. And you do that by creating an all here. Myths and legends. Yeah. Supported by good quality you know, winds of thunder. But you do create a myth and legend about how wonderful it is to go and work at that client. And we had the 20 partners that were working in the firm mm. were working on major league names. Yeah. They might have had zero fees, but we were getting in. People were just kind of very interested in, can you get me in there? Indeed. And I think, well, I think you summed it up really, really nicely a minute ago around, I need to know more about Unilever or whatever the account is than anybody else does. So yeah. that you can go, right, I'm hearing that, I'm spotting that, right, we can do this and that and that. And again, I take it back to my PwC days when part of the training I was given, just say yes. Whatever the client asks you, just say yes, we can do it. I guarantee there's someone in a cupboard somewhere that probably is an expert in something that can do that thing. Because well, you, you you just beat me to it there, Alex, uh, because um, <laughs> I was hungry for interesting, you know, interesting things. I viewed it like a running a dinner party. Yeah. And um, you've got your normal group of friends, and every dinner party, when we're allowed to go out and eat dinner and have people around. You bring somebody interested in to, you know, either introduce them to the group they moved into the area or just that'd be interesting if these people met this this person that I know. So I was always treating my clients as I've got this really interesting, you're going to love to meet this person. Um, because that, again, in the client's eyes, creates a proactive relationship. This person is bringing me bright people and bright ideas. Um, at the tail end of... Um, 2010, 2000, it got very, it, it got very competitive because mm -hmm. all firms were doing it. Yeah. Um, so then you have to be a bit selective, and then by that time, obviously, we had a, a pretty good network going on within the clients. All of us did, um, and some services were going really well, and some mm -hmm. weren't. And you know, kind of all the firms were expanding, so we then moved global. Got you. Got um, So. That's you know, matter, you know, matter to my ears, and you're you know, hearing that because I'm usually passionate about professional services and wanting to enable them to kind of understand the new world order of, of sales and marketing, BD and marketing, and um, what, what have you. But those that are in the professional services that may well be listening to this are going, yeah, but Steve, you work for EY, you're Ernst and Young, yeah. you're always going to get, you know, that brand is always going to kind of get you in in the front door, which I agree, I agree with to a certain extent. Again, I just I recall in my PwC days, so sometimes it was an inhibitor. You're too big, why would you be interested in us and so on and so forth. But again, the brands you are mentioning, big global recognized household brands. Yeah. Now you've had time to kind of decompress, come out and kind of take stock of life and have a look. And I know that you advise some, you know, some law firms around, uh, around this, maybe some other professional service firms. Do you believe that the model that EY have created, and I know iterating on that, that can be translated into, I don't know, a law firm of 5,000 people or 1,000, you know, 1,000 people. I mean, the last count I looked, the EY was at 289,000 employees. So this, you know, this machine, which again has its challenges, but can yeah. that be chance? Can that model where a partner moves out of a fee earning role? I know that in the legal sector, this is going to be a... That will be a miracle. <laughs> but do, do you believe that it can be done? It could be done? Oh, absolutely. Because um, 
there are innumerable problems out there which clients are facing mm -hmm. and there's always going to be space for somebody who comes along with a well-articulated point of view on how to solve that problem and mm -hmm. um, yeah there's no um, monopoly over bright ideas or intellectual property or intellectual capacity mm -hmm. when you get into law firms they've got a real head start on accountants because people trust lawyers and you know kind of get, they get really strong one-to-one -one relationships with yeah. their customers as, as, yeah. I'm not saying that people don't trust accountants but you know kind of yeah but the kind of relationships that i've seen senior and you know across all of the lawyer partners that i've bumped into is phenomenal but what i've seen being a blocker is well i can't possibly talk to them about anything else other than intellectual property and patent law or you know kind of um litigation support or contract law you know well you can because you've got a world view on things you're well read people are lonely in the in the customer and they're normally solving a problem as you walk in the door and if you show a glimmer of intelligence and sort of say what are you up to at the moment you know they might just share it because you've got the strength of the relationship the first thing i did in breaking into any account was to, to build that trusted relationship you know get a relationship going and you do that by having a conversation, being interested in them to be interesting. Once you've got that, then you do have to deliver some content, yeah. some point of views behind it. But I don't. I think that's a tradecraft that can come from a 250,000 company into a 5,000 very easily. Um, and that's, and, the, and again, it's it, the, 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 you know, I speak to my, my experiences at, at Berman, Leighton, Paisner. I mean, long left long before, before the merger. And again, it was that, but I know the answer to to this. But what I'm to the answer to ask the question to something I don't know the answer to. It doesn't matter. You just tell them I don't know the answer to that. I'll go. I'll go back to the ranch and find out someone who who can. And if I can't, I'll maybe recommend somebody who I think can answer that that question. That that for me still feels like quite a, a big step change for. I'm talking broad, broad brushstroke here for the majority of lawyers. And this isn't a thing. This isn't you know lawyer lawyer bashing. It's just the nature of of the industry that that is that is legal and then you still see this younger generation of lawyer coming through the market and they're just like do not deviate from this you do this you be in this box and you just be be there so that's going to take some quite brave leadership to kind of take the the leap that you know ey did in terms of right we've got 20 no doubt um <laughs> quite expensive partners uh, appear to oh, be yeah. advancing around the world for three years and not generating any revenue. Come on, lads, we're going to back them all on the, on this. And you're thinking, hmm, really? That's eating potentially into, and this is a whole other conversation which we won't go down, eating into PEP and profits and the, yeah. you know, reward, the reward structures and partnerships is probably for another day. But um, so how would, and again, this difficult question to, to kind of maybe answer in, in, in this session alone, but what sort of things as a, as a you know, managing partner that's just coming in, new senior partner, the client partner teams that are created, what sort of things do they need to be thinking about, do you think? Ah, uh, um, it could be a very simplistic statement to say there's a lot of disruption in the market at the moment. Yeah, there is. Not, it's not being caused by digital technology, it's being caused by this virus. Yeah. Um, and so there are, I think there are tectonic changes going on. Mm -hmm. uh, are we going to be global or local? 
where are, is the locus of our workforce? Where are the clients going to be? All those things about virtual working, yeah. uh, learning remotely, um, what's happening on the high street, you know, breaking news every day in the UK. Yeah. Um, and, you know, therefore, what's, are you feeling the heat, legal profession management around what used to be quite a stable Mm -hmm. uh, business and are you prepared for the change that's likely to come uh, when your client just stops doing one thing and goes off into a different place where the people you used to be able to go and talk to and see face to face mm -hmm. you're going to have to do that virtually um, I think also um, the law profession is facing as all professions are a massive challenge around the cost of value mm -hmm. equation. And uh, how do I explain that? Um, what clients used to buy from us, they will no longer pay for because they expect us to be technologically enabled. Right, okay. This is your back office processes. Yeah. All that, all, we used to pay you, you know, um, um, role play now, law yeah. firm, I used to pay for 10 of your paralegals to review all of our contracts. I would have expected you by now to have that done using AI, yeah. optical character recognition, natural language processing. And I'm not going to pay for those 10 paralegals. Mm -hmm. You better cut that out the price. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, uh, so, you know, I see a lot of firms at the moment focusing on the back office. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, the front office, this gives your client handlers so much more time now to think about value-added services. Yeah. How can they use that time that they weren't, they don't have to spend anymore because mm -hmm. they're technologically enabled? And if you're not uh, an alternative um, law service yeah. provider is going to pop up or heaven forbid, a big four player is going to move into your territory. So there's that kind of thing. So if I was leadership, I would really be thinking about what are we really good at and what do we need to adapt because the world's changed. Mm -hmm. I think and if we really... No, carry, sorry, sorry. You, you, you carry on, you carry on, you're trying to thought. Um, well, I'm thinking, what, if, what, what are we really good at? What are the adjacencies that we can move into? Mm -hmm. And can we replicate what we see, not just in professional services firms, but other players, you know, the Amazons, the Googles, yeah. the what are these companies doing that we can learn from? Um, I think, that, the yeah, that's that, that for me is, that, that's an interesting one in terms of <laughs> actually getting legal to look outside of legal and rather bringing the same people in from a different firm. It's just the same stuff, just a different, different color. Uh, you know, small West End firm I'm talking to at the moment, you know, focusing on kind of te technology. And you know, you know, I like the way, I like the fact you use the term enabled because, and to the, to the point around contracts, at the end of the day, the customers don't actually care what cloud platform one, what technology you're using to do it. They just want it to work. And I kind of liken it to, um, I bank with NatWest, the NatWest banking app, gives a really good user experience. It gives it, it works, it does what I need to do. I then go into the Amex banking app, and it's shit <laughs> compared, to the, compared to the the NatWest one. I'm thinking this is this is kind of a bit of incongruous here because Amex is a you know perceived brand versus NatWest. Why can't this do what my other app can do in terms of the ex the expectation that's been set in terms of uh, client uh, client experience? And I believe that that's where law firms can start to win the battle. Is stop this kind of AI tech, you know, what have you, chat? Because to be honest, 
The clients don't care. They just expect it. To your point, Steve, they just expect that's how that should be done and that should be reflected in terms of um, uh, in terms of the, the cost that, that is replicated. Value is an interesting one. I think that you know, the pandemic has totally shifted, A, what we value as, hum as humans in, in a day-to-day, -day, yeah. but also that value exchange between clients and in this digital world. And I saw a piece by McKinsey the other day that's saying that some of the, the survey they did of how many people that now B2B are prepared to go as far as like <coughs> spending upwards of a million dollars on a product or service in a completely virtual environment. Are you not actually necessarily having to talk to somebody? Which yeah. I think is, is going to be an interesting one in terms of our world, because one thing I have missed is actual physical relationships in terms of actual meeting. I, I genuinely believe you can't build the level of trust that you will have built as a trusted advisor unless you're actually, you actually know the person. And I mean, not in this environment, but know them to socialize with them. You know, this is the sort of relationship where my previous business development director would describe it as the relate, you know, you've got a good relationship when you're walking the streets of London and you walk past a client building, you pick up the phone, I'm just outside and you got five minutes to see me for a coffee. And they say, yes, yeah. when they say yes, I believe, you know, you're, you're in that, that environment, but we're probably not going to be in that environment for, for a while. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. the technology enablement piece to drive that that client value and i think it's the story that i shared with you um uh, when we were when we were off air it sounds very posh doesn't it when we were off air in the green room um around the tv <laughs> around the the, t the tv remote so liam halpin from linkedin sales solutions you know he said my grandpa uh bought a remote control or a, a, a television with a remote control but he didn't want to lose the remote control so he left the remote control on top of the tv every time he wanted to change the channel he got up off the sofa to then change the channel so the remote control was fundamentally redundant in terms of the the, the what it was designed for because liam's grandpa hadn't changed his behaviors and his process to kind of fit the the new way of achieving the same outcomes so in yeah. In your travels with uh, the likes of Microsoft and, and you know, EY in terms of, I know it has you know, wave space and the innovation centers it kind of it creates. <clears throat> what were you seeing in that world of technology or how was EY, I guess, leveraging technology to facilitate you in terms of your role as a sales person or what you were delivering for, for your clients? And again, maybe what can professional service firms take from that to your point of look at what Amazon and Google are doing. That may be a bit scary for them. But look at what Microsoft is doing for Unilever, who might be a client of theirs. They might be able to kind of compute that slightly more easily. Right. Um, so in terms of enablement, um, I'm sure we weren't alone in EY, but the drive was to make it really simple for an account partner to do their job. Okay. I, I got to a point when I was doing it where I didn't really need to go to my desk because I was all the time at the client. Yeah, they're doing you know boring stuff like issuing bills, mm -hmm. doing uh, client acceptance, quality uh, you know risk management, timesheets, whatever I could all do on the move, and it was enabled. Next, you get into can we give these account partners a hose pipe of data and well information and value-added knowledge to help them understand what's going on in consumer products or life sciences or financial services. Can we create an environment where it is all about 90% with the customer and 10% doing all the other stuff? So of course, um, 
that's the efficiency behind the scenes and then everything we did with the customer was being driven and should be driven to being more digital and interactive and technically enabled so no longer would would we pitch up and say we'll do this job it's going to take three thousand hours and we need to ship all these people over there yeah we would have offshore facilities we'd have the capability to do work overnight by using india or costa rica or whatever the hub was uh, and it was all driven to let's make life easy to sell uh, and enrich the conversation with the client and that's never changed so going back to whether you can do this with a 200 firm a 5,000 firm or 250,000 firm the key things as far as I'm concerned are consistent contact with the fuel client okay. so when you say I'll stay in touch you stay in touch yeah you say you will do something you will do that thing used to drive me wild when you introduced, you know, the best way to sell on an account is have 20 partners selling yeah. or 20 directors or 20 specialists selling. So you would introduce people. Uh, the good ones would just do, follow the same wheel. Yeah. yeah, I've got an introduction. I'm going to make myself indispensable. The bad ones would go, I was really busy over there last week. So have you been in touch since I introduced you? Well, no, I'm just getting around to you. So the consistency of contact's gone. So that the high touch that the client expects yeah. gone. Quality of content. You know, you can't do anything after the first or second. Hi, I'm here to understand what you're doing and what are the issues are without going back with some quality content. I mean quality because we were fighting at the topic. Yeah. All of these companies, and I would say the companies that the, the legal firms are dealing with, architects or whatever, they're all the top of their game. Otherwise, they wouldn't be your clients. Uh, and they're full of bright people who could do that stuff. Yeah. The only thing that stops those people doing that stuff is they haven't got the time to do it. That's why they use professional services. Yeah. Part of the time. So if you don't have the content and the quality, why would they why would they come to you rather than somebody else? And the last bit is having a point of view. The worst thing in the world is going, yeah, that's right, Clark. You've got to you know, stand up sometimes and go, no, you won't. No, if I were you, I'd do this. No, I think you need to be thinking about this. So a point of view. So that's the other thing that EY would do. We would have a point of view mm-hmm. on on things. So, you know, kind of with the stuff, you know, the website is just full of interesting stuff. But, um, you know, mega trend surveys every year are really interesting. And there's a really interesting um, set of mega trends that have to do with the moment. So stuff like that, you'd always have something to go and put in front of the client. Yeah. Um, the issue then became is sometimes the client was overrun with people with interesting ideas, so knowing when to stand back or not. Indeed. So that's what so I think. You know, having maybe uh, having experienced this is that when the you know you may have seen this when when your your former peers started coming into play, all the big four kind of saying the same thing around it was just a slightly different viewpoint. So how how do you then, Steve, stand out from your compadre in PW or KPMG or, or Deloitte, where the, the the round is is more or less the same. So, what is it that you bring that they don't? If that makes sense. Um, um, well, it's um, well, it's many parts of it. Some of it, some of it worked, some of it didn't. Some of it worked some of the time. Some yeah. Yeah, being honest. 
Um, I traded on the fact that I always delivered what we promised and we didn't deliver things that we couldn't do. Say your adage about, yeah, EY like PWK. There's always somebody that could handle that problem, but sometimes they weren't up to the top. So not going to do that. Dead, yeah, a whole different conversation about delivering projects. I would stay involved, uh, whether there was a fee or not. So, you know, kind of, yeah, you have to, de- you know, salespeople have to develop a thick skin. So, you know, kind of, yeah, you didn't win every time and there wasn't a job every time you went to see somebody. But the fact that you kept on going was the thing that I think builds respect. Absolutely. And knowing when to pull out and when to go back. Yeah. And when the when the quarterly reporting schedule is for the finance function, knowing when you know the marketing department can do price elasticity far better than your boffins in advisory, so back off, you know, and wait, you know, at least you've shown them you can do it and they'll call when they need it. Not chasing the ambulance when there's a deal in place. So a lot of the time as a, 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 a camp partner, I remember... Um, Unilever was attacked by 3G um, and craft. The phone went hot. Oh, yeah, we must go and talk to the chief executive and the CFO. You know them, so you know, we'll have to get in there. Well, I, they know where we are. I think they've got their auditors, they've got Goldman Sachs, and they've got their lawyer. <laughs> so, I personally, I know that picking up the phone will be a very short conversation if you get through. So, yeah. um, it's stuff like that that I think at the end of the day, the client understands and will, yeah, if I, I got to a point with all my clients where if I found out and said, I think you should meet this person, they would meet that person. Um, I got to a point where I could have a conversation about, is it the right time to, are you well served at the moment? Can we help? No, we can't. Okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, and then knowing when to push hard when you think, well, you really shouldn't listen to this. Um, so it's consistency of contact, delivering what they promise, having a point of view sometimes, mm-hmm. and making sure you always deliver quality. Um, projects became very complicated as global happened, as technology happened. Yeah. So you're always bolting together different disciplines. And my job was to be the bubblegum sticking plaster and string and holding it all together. But sometimes it didn't work. And then just putting your arms on and going, that hasn't worked, has it? Yeah. But you've got enough credits in the bank to fix it, and I think the way you fix things is as is, is as good uh, a builder of relationship as yeah. just doing a brilliant job. Indeed, um, and um, I mean that's been. I we could talk about we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. Now you've now you've come out, and you're in kind of you know the, the world of kind of consulting or entrepreneurship or what a solopreneur what do you want to call it what's been your yeah. what's been your your kind of biggest learning to date with you you say since coming out of a machine that is <clears throat> that is ey for the large part of your your career well i'm, I'm back to the heady days of 2003 2004 unless i pick up the phone <laughs> or scooch around linkedin or you know kind of read the papers and think that'd be interesting how do i get into there nothing happens yeah um so there's no channel for me um so i'm out there building my building channels as much as relationships so you and i met recently you yeah. know kind of i i got got to you via relationship yeah yeah um 
two, three. I'm a great believer in six degrees of separation and LinkedIn, had I had that back in 2000, yeah, it's manner from heaven now, it's no point in going backwards, but, you know, kind of what you can do with that tool now and the ability to connect with people you've never met before, which, you know, I've got a handful of new relationships that I've built. So, it's, it's, yeah, I'm enjoying, you know, kind of going back to first base again. <laughs> back which to the is, the dating guys, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and the old adage, you know, it's still about consistency of contact, having a point of view and having some quality content. So sometimes I'll be honest, when I've I've made the first connection, I didn't really you know, I haven't really thought through the content. Yeah. So I can get the first meeting on the weight of, you know, yeah, it'd be good to meet talk to this person. Yeah. But what's the follow through? What's the content? So I'm I'm building content at the moment, which is I'm trying to you know, I'm mod yeah, I'm being honest now, I'm building modules of learning that I can impart and, and build and you know, go out and see if people would like to benefit from my experience, some trade craft, and then I'm teaching myself some new tricks. So, you know, kind of listening to podcasts. I'm a great listener of podcasts, so very varied. Uh, Michael Lewis, I'm a great fan of. Yeah. So uh, I learned about gong through oh, uh, gong. <laughs> Have gong. you heard about this? Gong, yeah. G-O-N-G. So, uh, Michael Lewis, I'll recommend, the first podcast recommendation, other than yours, Alex, <laughs> is um, Michael Lewis, Breaking the Rules. Michael Lewis has written a big, short, money ball, all those yeah. novels. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, what's this? Oh, I like him. So, and and um, Malcolm Gladwell is another one of my favorites. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Gladwell has launched this podcast platform. And Michael Lewis is one of his first players. He did one about six episodes about the referee and six episodes about the coach. So I mm-hmm. dipped my toe in um, the coach. And it's all about the role of coaches in our daily lives now from whether you're a sportsman to a businessman mm-hmm. to a salesperson and the sales one was talking about data yeah and insights and with a guy called amit bendel mm-hmm. on serial startup um data techie guy um decided he would apply his uh, ai and machine learning to why are some salespeople more successful than others. So uh, with natural language processing, he listened to about 30,000 sales calls. Ah, uh, gong, right, sorry, the, the, because the, I'm now my in a different place because we're talking professional services, so gong, gong.io, yes, brilliant, genius idea. So um, we were always taught, or we taught ourselves back to EY, keep asking questions. Yeah. So um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with this, all gone but if you're in sales apparently uh, 13 questions is the optimal number of questions to ask and speaking for 43 percent of the time how did he find that out in correlated successful salespeople by sales made with what the machine was hearing in terms of number of questions and percentage of time talking so the the old adage is let your client do the talking but only for 50 percent 57% 57% of the time. And the thing is, I think a voice for me that we, we you know, we'll, this, this requires a voice for me, I think, in 
you know, what were the likes of Gong were doing in, in, in sales for that exact thing, data and data and insight analysis, which they've never had before. Imagine if you took that into a professional service firm. Imagine the amount of conversations that are happening. Imagine the the insight that could be that could be drawn from that. But um, I feel for, for for another time. Steve. So, um, oh, yeah. we run out of time. No, no, we can I'm go. Gonna... We can go. We'll give you another five minutes. We'll go. We'll go. We'll go. Another another, another podcast plug, and you'll see how my mind works. I'm just listening. I listen to various things. Uh, mm-hmm. Alec Baldwin. Yeah. There's a podcast called Here's the Thing. And I'm interested in art, um, and um, I thought I'd listen to it. It's all about uh, game-changing um, art dealers and how they created the market. So Larry Gargosian mm-hmm. is a big name in the art, art market. Um, I'm always listening to these things, and then I'm doing it for interest, but then I'm writing notes about how I can use it themselves. So Gargosian decided to change the playing field. It wasn't about taking the art around. Mm-hmm. It was about getting the buyers in a captive sales environment. Right. So when he, <laughs> he would, you know, when he got to, um, it's quite a life story on this podcast, but the end of it is he's a big ticket dealer now. Mm-hmm. And they had one of his customers on, a big financial services person, and said, you know, what are you doing for holiday? Oh, I'm going to my da- Miami. Where are you going to stay? Oh, at Larry's house. Why are you staying there? Well, Larry offered me his pad. Oh, it's great. It's full of art. Oh, Captain, so, yeah. So Larry is just bringing the buyers to the art rather than the art to the buyers. So I don't know how I'm going to use that, but it's always a good adage that if you fail at one way in the market, change the game. Like it. If you fail at one way in the market, change the game. And I think what a brilliant a brilliant place to, uh, to end. Uh, Steve, where can people uh, find you if they want to follow up and connect with you on hearing, uh, hearing this? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I've yet to go fully digital, so but I'm working on a landing page, etc. But yeah, I'm on my LinkedIn. If they want to send me a message, they can get to me there. Um, yeah. Excellent. Well, I'll put the link to your LinkedIn page on this on the, the blog somewhere here, and then the podcast. Just listen, you know, click on the wherever podcast you're on, and uh, and go from there. But Steve, uh, it's been a joy to have you on. I'm glad that I was able to pop your podcast uh, cherry, so to speak. Although that sounds a little bit weird. Um, I did have I did I did have a podcast with two others the other day, and I said that's my first threesome. It fell very flat, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so without further be careful with these things these days though <laughs> um and to everybody that's listening and tuning in thank you as always really do appreciate it if there's anybody that you want me to get on here if you yourself want to come on this uh hit me up you know where i am otherwise uh steve thank you and thank you alex thanks to everyone else stay safe wherever you are in the world <laughs>